Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about Minding Your P's and Q's, Part 5. past year and a half, I've accumulated some feedback, but I've decided to make this not exclusively a feedback show. There's a couple of reasons. One is that I did cover in Inappropriate Conversations 172, Proud to Know You too. some feedback related to that and the recording of Walk the Earth number 30, but also because I've got a few topics that I've been looking at, and I know they're not going to become a full-length Inappropriate Conversations show. So by pairing some relatively small-sized ideas, together with a few elements of feedback that I've received, uh, it should work out uh, nicely to be a normal-sized and appropriate conversation, along with featuring a different drummer that I don't know that I would find a spot for in any normal topic for inappropriate conversations as a show. The other thing I wanted to start off with, though, is how it's going to take me a little bit of time to get used to a monthly format. It occurs to me that this is going to come out maybe a month, maybe even a little more than a month, after the last Inappropriate Conversations, which was a clip show, looking at the best of Simply Syndicated. And I know that I won't hit the uh, Inappropriate Conversations cadence at faster than a month for any any time in the near future. But I do know that some of my favorite stories are coming. Uh, Stories both of my writing and of the writing of others. Ancient writings, you might say. This also might be a good time to point out that inappropriate conversations can be heard on Stitcher, Stitcher Smart Radio, one of the mobile ways to listen to podcasts. There also are clips from the oldest shows recorded in the Inappropriate Conversations podcast on SoundCloud, a taste of what the entire episode would be about, or in some cases a complete work of mine that I've lifted from that episode and placed in its entirety by itself as a SoundCloud clip. Inappropriate Conversations, as always, can be found at www.inappropriateconversations.org. For email, I still use IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com. On Twitter, IC underscore Greg, which is also how you find me on SoundCloud. And there's also a Facebook page for both Walk the Earth and Inappropriate Conversations. But to dive right into the short subjects first... I was watching college football here, this year in particular, and to some degree it might have been true last year as well, and noting the impact of finally having some sort of playoff system. Now, I've spoken about college football and the ineptness of its system of picking a champion years ago. Sportsmanship is how to play the game. Might have been the title I used for inappropriate conversations, number 77, right at the end of the 2011 college football season, late December, perhaps early January. And here, for the last two years, this season that just completed, is the second college football playoff. Now, it doesn't make sense for anyone to get too excited about how that sounds. It's basically a four-team semifinal and final game, where the participants are chosen by a committee, so you're still in a very difficult situation where Winning a conference championship doesn't get you a seat at the table. And uh, there's a random process, I suppose, would be the way I would put it. It's extremely subjective who gets into those four games. What makes this interesting to me, and it's not to cast any aspersions on Alabama's national championship this year or Ohio State's national championship the year before. No, what I want to point out 
is what I'm calling an incentive for corruption. In the past, the way conferences are aligned, the way the, way the big-time college football teams are set up into arbitrarily, frankly, chosen conference alignments, and those teams play each other, and the winner of that conference gets the best bowl games. And, and my point of view is that there's nothing inherently wrong with the conferences. I would like, in fact, for the conference system to stay more or less like it is today. It can be improved. But to have every team that wins its conference to get seeded, and it doesn't matter if you get seeded 8th and you have to play the best team in the country, or 16th and you have to play the best team in the country. The conferences should play each other, and the champions should play like the Champions League in European soccer, in European football. That's also a situation where it does lead to some early round mismatches where the winner of one country's club confederation, if you will, is in no way equipped to compete with even the second best team from one of the other countries. That's what tournament play is all about. It's like a 16 seed playing a one seed in the NCAA college basketball tournament. We haven't scrapped the NCAA college basketball tournament because of what happens when a 16 seeded team plays a one seed. No, the problem is the incentive for the conferences themselves to meddle in outcomes. And for anybody who watches college football, I'm just going to provide a quick reminder. But anybody who hasn't, you might be able to find clips, at least of the second example I'm going to use. I'm pretty sure there'll be YouTube clips out there for this. Because there was some very strange officiating that went on at the end of the college football season. In neither case will I say that that officiating, if handled more professionally, would have led to a different outcome. We don't know that. The more, more to the point, though, is that corruption's wrong even when the person who's being corrupted is unaware of his own corruption. I'm also not saying that any of these decisions were made through any sort of willful malfeasance. It may have been enough for an official to know in the back of his mind that if early in the game between Oklahoma and Oklahoma State, where the, uh, the question of the game was still in doubt, and Oklahoma State had scored and kicked the ball off, and in a jarring tackle, a tackle that frankly might have been the kind of tackle you'd look at and, and ask whether it was clean enough, because it was a tackle that instantaneously separated that Oklahoma Sooners kick returner from the football. And the officials blew it dead after Oklahoma State recovered the ball. It would have been one of those quick turnaround plays, like a special teams or defensive score almost. But instead, the officials huddled together, and you could almost see them deciding, what do we have to call here to make sure this doesn't go to instant replay? Because we said it wasn't a fumble. But if it goes to instant replay, it's it's very likely to get overturned. And we don't think it should be overturned. And we don't want to let those guys upstairs overturn it. So what do we say? Do we, uh, do we say that we blew an inadvertent whistle? Yeah. Let's say we blew an inadvertent whistle because inadvertent whistle would stop the play from going upstairs. And then no, no. This year in college football, inadvertent whistle is not a guarantee that replay can't get involved. Replay would make a judgment based on what happened before the whistle occurred. So instead, the next best thing to claim that the player's forward progress had stopped. Well, his forward progress had stopped for the millisecond, the split second of the contact, again, the ferocious hit. But every tackle, I mean, it would turn the college football game into touch football because every tackle stops forward progress if that stopped forward progress. Now, in result of all this, Oklahoma did not um, suffer a quick turnaround. Oklahoma State did not score again and take the lead. And the final result in the game was completely lopsided. In other words, no reason to worry that in this particular night, 
the Oklahoma Sooners weren't going to win the game, win the Big 12 Conference, and earn themselves a spot in that Final Four for the playoff of NCAA college football. So, why go through all the effort? If you're an official, why all the angst about the call? Why, why being so aggressive to make sure that no mistakes hurt the higher-ranked team? Well, I can offer one word of incentive. And again, maybe it's subconscious. Maybe I'm completely wrong. But if Oklahoma wins this game, then a Big 12 team is in this lucrative, financially lucrative playoff. If Oklahoma State wins the game, maybe not. Go to the other side of the coin. Undefeated. Ranked number one in the human polls, Clemson, playing in an ACC championship game on the same night against North Carolina. And for most of the game, Clemson having their way with North Carolina. But the Tar Heels scored to get back to a situation where maybe they would have enough time to kick an onside kick, get the kick, score a touchdown, go for two, force overtime, and maybe win it in overtime. So once again, this North Carolina Tar Heels football team was in no way immediately hampered. Uh, The officials did not rob them of the game because they still had a ton of work to do against a reasonably good defense, especially in a bend-don't-break kind of a way. That Clemson defense was pretty effective in most games this year and had been effective against North Carolina until the the desperate play calling kicked in late in the game for the Tar Heels. So North Carolina lines up for an onside kick, and they execute it perfectly, and they recover the ball, and with just enough time left, we're certainly in position to perhaps mount a game-tying drive that could have made things a little bit interesting in an overtime scenario for the Atlantic Coast Conference. And again, if North Carolina does pull off the miracle win, then... There's no guarantee North Carolina was going to earn a spot in that top four. Maybe they get bumped and the ACC has no representative. Maybe Clemson gets in there anyway because it's human beings deciding everything. We don't really know. But the odds are high that if Clemson lost that game, even in overtime, they would be out of the Final Four. And possibly the ACC would be out altogether. There was an offside penalty called against North Carolina. And it negated the successful onside kick. And the team had to attempt the onside kick again. Element of surprise now completely missing. Not that Clemson was surprised at the onside kick attempt. Everybody in the world who understands American football knew that was coming. But they'd just seen North Carolina's best shot at it. They'd just seen the blueprint. The play had come off the chalkboard and been played in front of the Clemson team's eyes on the football field. Uh, They weren't likely to be unaware of what North Carolina's strategy was. But I will tell you that as a, as a football fan, I and everyone else on this planet is completely unaware of which player was offside and why any college football official would have thought somebody on that play was offside. My theory, because the ACC official allegedly maintains that he still, quote, saw what he saw, despite the, quote, video replay angle not giving a quote, fair picture of everything. No, I think the reality is that he was anticipating offside, expecting it, maybe hoping for it, I don't know. It depends on whether my corruption idea has any validity or not. But he certainly saw what he expected to see, whether what he expected to see happened on the field. And a lot of this has to do with the money, with that much money concentrated into which of which four out of all the college football teams who might be eligible for the playoffs instead of just a traditional bowl game, and which conference are those players from? 
So college football has always had a bit of an incompetence problem. It hasn't managed instant replay well at all. The offside play, for example, on that onside kick is not eligible for instant replay review. Clearly, this is a problem. But now I'm beginning to wonder if there isn't some sort of subliminal corruption going on, some sense of how bad it would be for the conference if the wrong team won a game in a conference championship or in a very late-in-season game where there's a lot of money to be made if your team is part of the Final Four. This is what I mean by hitting some small topics, some short topics. I'm not going to devote an entire Inappropriate Conversations podcast to talking about my favorite movies of the year, but I'm going to do it a little bit here just to kind of say that obviously anybody who's doing movie reviews or has any passion about film whatsoever, there's a gigantic elephant in the room this year because of the return of Star Wars. And it would be one thing if Star Wars 7 looked more like Star Wars 2 and 3 than looking more like 4 and 5. And the truth is that all the arguments that have been made about Star Wars 7 The Force Awakens being extremely derivative of the original trilogy released in the 1970s and 80s, well, they're absolutely right. But I think most fans would join me in saying, who cares? Let me tell you something about fandom. Almost every day, when I got out of elementary school and, and made my way home, some days mom was home, some days she was working. Either way, that after-school time was sort of a kid television time. Dad wasn't home from work yet, and you could kind of watch what you wanted to watch. And then after the, you know, maybe the first couple hours when you're doing homework, if there was any, and watching television, you go outside and play until dad got home. I tell that just to say... I've seen every episode of the original Star Trek series more times than I can count. I've seen every episode of Gilligan's Island more times than I can count. And if somebody made a Gilligan's Island remake today, and the uh, the big screen version of trying to revive Gilligan's Island as a completely silly, almost dadaistically silly comedy, harkened back too much and too closely to the original television series, why would I complain? I wouldn't have watched those episodes over and over again if I didn't like them. And your average Star Wars fan is more likely to sit down and watch episodes 4 and 5 and 6 than they are any anything else in the Star in the Star Wars canon. Probably more likely to read a book, certainly more likely than watching the Clone Wars, you know, the kids series. So, Star Wars 7, no complaints about the fact that it was derivative. I've called it derivative and and I've I'm allowing room for people who want to view that as an insult to view it as exactly that. But it's not necessarily true. Here's the problem, though. The same weekend I saw Star Wars, I also saw The Big Short. And I can tell you that of the two, one of them is a great film. The other one is incredibly entertaining. And there is a difference between the two. But if you don't care about the difference, it absolutely doesn't matter. One of them, the one that's incredibly entertaining but not necessarily a great film, might actually change the way we make movies. But let me say something about The Big Short, a very, very dry comedy or perhaps even comedy drama about the financial disaster uh, from, let's say, 2006 to 2009 that just about wrecked the world's economy has restored my faith, this film, in the words, based on a true story. For most of my life, if I saw the words based on a true story, I wanted no part of the movie. There's a couple reasons why you would emphasize the truthfulness of the screenplay you've written. 
One is that it is dramatically inept. And therefore, if you don't tell people that what you wrote is based on real events, they wouldn't otherwise believe them. You've got a bit of a dramatic issue there either way. The other is that it's going to be lazy. And a story that could have been better written and more impactful, if delivered as truly fiction, is taking some shortcuts. uh, Using what um, I've heard some actors describe as that difference between imitation and impersonation. Are you doing an impression of Richard Nixon? Or are you doing an interpretation of Richard Nixon in a Nixon biopic, just to use that as an example? No. Here's how the big short restored my faith. First, I'm convinced from what I've read and what I know and what I saw on the screen that the story was told accurately. But better, the parts of the story that you wouldn't really know, nervous tics of certain characters who are based on real people, even if their names have been changed to provide some level of protection for those individuals, The thing I liked the best was the movie, in several places, breaks the fourth wall, turns to the audience, and tells you a little bit more about what's going on. It's done largely for comic effect and very effectively, but the ones I enjoy the most are a couple of moments in the film where one of the characters, same character in each each occasion, stops and tells you that what you're seeing is not actually true. It didn't happen this way. It happened in a slightly different way. Here's the way that really happened. But, hey, what the heck? The characters are here. (laughs) The scene has been set. The lights are shining. Let's roll the cameras. So a movie that is, quote-unquote, based on a true story, but is that transparent about when it's telling that story falsely, can be relied upon that much more when it stops to tell you that what's about to happen is absolutely true. The Big Short is a film. May not win Best Picture. It may not win Best Director. It certainly will not change the way movies are made, in my opinion. Star Wars 7 has a shot at this. It certainly has revived one of the most lucrative franchises in uh, genre fiction film history. But I think The Big Short has been a game changer, at least for me, in showing people the way that you can actually do this true story with names changed to protect the innocent or crucial fictionalized elements simply to make the drama work and maintain the integrity of the story being told. I mention this here specifically because when it comes to integrity, I want to spend, I've wanted to do this for a long time, and I still may yet do this again in the future. I've wanted to go in and look back to, say, 2007 and 8, at all of the predictions that had been made, not just then, before uh, Barack Obama was elected president of the United States, and not even just in the the, four, the election four years later, but things that have been said along the way on key milestones. Just to call out how many times people who are opposed to the sitting president of either party have simply gone hysterical and been irrational. I think there might actually be comic value, genuine comic value, in looking at some of the nonsense that was said, especially here in the last eight years, of people who are politically opposed to Barack Obama. Right now we've got an election coming up, and I've ignored this election hype all the way through the year 2015, because in the United States we don't have national presidential elections in 2015. We have them in 2016, but I do have my first piece of mail called a Presidential Platform Survey from the Republican National Committee. I might have mentioned this before on Inappropriate Conversations. I am a political moderate. I am a registered Republican. 
There have been times in my life when I've been registered Democrat and times I've been registered Republican. And regardless of either one of those major party affiliations, I've voted independent more often than anything else. I have so little respect, in other words, for both these political parties that I see no value in affiliating with either one of them. And therefore, I see no value in changing the affiliation with either one. And often as not, when you look at it strategically, if the Republican Party has been more lost here in the last decade or two, and has the best chance of making a real difference in American politics by correcting their errors and righting their ship, then maybe it does make sense to participate in their primary as opposed to the Democrats' primary or sitting out the primary season altogether. It's funny. I take some heat from people who are Republican and know I'm Republican for how indifferent I am to all of the debates and all the other posturing that went on throughout calendar year 2015. I didn't care who was announcing for what. I'm not interested in who Jeb Bush might pick for his running mate if he might win when that conversation was happening at a time when that actually seemed like it might be possible. And now it's obviously a comic waste of time to have spent much con- to give it a much consideration. But here we are now, finally, face-to-face with the, the real presidential party process kicking in. The politics are in gear. Uh, primaries are coming here in the next few uh, weeks and months. The Cleveland, I believe, is going to host a July Republican uh, convention, the, the nonsense that is the conventions, and again, regardless what your political affiliation is. A process that used to be about making sure that you were hammering out the final details to pick your candidate to represent your party in general elections in November has now become little more than a really hideously transparent infomercial. In the interest of talking about transparent infomercials, let me share some of, not all, but just a few representative questions from the survey questionnaire I got shortly after the new year from the Republican National Convention. Do you believe that the president should use, quote, executive orders, unquote, to circumvent Congress in order to change federal laws he does not agree with? This was not a question anyone was asking during the Reagan or Bush administrations, and um, this power was used liberally during those presidents' terms of office. Do you want to see the majority of Barack Obama's policies repealed, reversed, and replaced by conservative reforms and fiscally responsible policies? All right. Leading questions, right? You see where I'm getting. But I'm going to go into a few more of these questions just to see if they don't actually slip into the ridiculous. And the argument that I'm going to make is that this survey didn't deserve to be filled out. I certainly didn't waste any time on it because it really wasn't about a voter giving the Republican National Committee valuable feedback. This was two-part. It was marketing that can then later be used to say, 90% of Republicans think that the president shouldn't be able to use his executive order power. But most is trying to use loaded, leading the witness, even misleading questions to try to influence the person reading it. It's uh, it's a technique, in other words. Instead of uh, laying out in elaborate detail an essay arguing and influencing what your point of view would be, you trick people into thinking that you're posing objective questions to them when those questions themselves are filled with bias. Do you support federal tax reform that eliminates deductions and lowers rates? Okay, so far so good. To create a fairer, flatter income tax system. Begs the question that a flatter income tax system would be the fairer income tax system. 
Are you in favor of raising the minimum wage despite estimates from the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office that, could, that it could cause businesses to eliminate as many, five, as, many as 500,000 jobs? All right, it ends with a question mark, not an exclamation point. But I think the exclamation point was clearly implied here. Just a totally out-of-control, biased point of view, trying to level nonpartisan as if that is somehow equivalent to objective, when we actually do have... Uh, to much to the chagrin of the Republican Party, real live tests happening in markets like Seattle and elsewhere that will tell us the impact of raising the minimum wage on metrics like unemployment. I, for one, do not believe that 500,000 jobs need to be eliminated. And you might hear otherwise from people like the owner of Papa John's Pizza, but it would be very interesting to make a comparison to the pay scales used in the current corporation of Papa John's versus the pay scales used 30, 40, 50 years ago in Pizza Hut, from which indirectly Papa John's sprang. In other words, you'd have to go back to find this change in American economic policy so far that it would predate the existence of Papa John's pizza. But if you follow Pizza Hut and Papa John's together and just said, what does the CEO of these companies make versus the average pay of everybody in the organization, including that CEO. What's that gap from top to bottom when you average it out? And more importantly, what was it 50 years ago? And maybe that tells you why you don't really have to threaten to lay off a whole bunch of your employees, simply to put your system into what we might have called an effective stakeholder structure when I was first old enough to enter the workplace. Do you believe that reducing the federal corporate tax rate, now one of the highest in the world, will help stimulate job creation and economic growth? Okay, again, you take out the parenthetical, it's an interesting question. A yes or no question, meaning it's somewhat less effective. At best, they're going to get, again, this is not about getting feedback. Feedback is fill in the blank. Yes and no is, is about being able to quote large, distorting, obvious-looking statistics from the floor of a Republican National Convention in Cleveland later this year. Do you agree with Hillary Clinton's statement that businesses and corporations do not create jobs? Well, not only is that an interesting question, and, uh, and one that targets what they think I think will probably be the likely Democratic nominee, the question itself not only begs the question, but the answer seems to be so obvious to me that it's, it's a bit misleading. It's a lot like what I talked about in the last Walk the Earth should you fire a professor at a, at a Christian university for saying that there's only one God? That's kind of what was going on at Wheaton College. Wheaton College's position, if they follow through on their threats, begins with them begging the question that there must be more than one God, that, they, that theism itself must be fatally flawed, and that polytheism is the reality in the universe, and my God's better than everybody else's God. Well, here, same idea. Hillary Clinton is making what I think is a very obvious uh, economics 101 point. The job creation is ultimately the result of the activity of customers, not businesses. Should federal unemployment benefits be extended indefinitely with no requirement to seek work or attain education and training towards finding a new job? Yeah, there you go. The point of view. Anyway, the Big Short, I mentioned the movie and I segue from there to here because the movie The Big Short makes the argument really well. There's a lot of people in the world who are unemployed today who weren't unemployed, who would not have been unemployed 10 years ago. 
But what happened from 2006 to 2009 that created that massive level of unemployment wasn't anyone's laziness, anyone's refusing to work, anyone's failing to advance or improve themselves or attain education or training. What happened to the economy that created that unemployment was one of the biggest crimes in the history of the world, and we haven't, we haven't held anybody accountable for it. It's actually a lie. Watch the movie. We held one guy kind of accountable just a little bit. Do you support reforming the way government pays for Medicare for future retirees while preserving the existing program and options for those who now utilize it? Again, the same deal. Let's talk about taking Medicare away from future generations, but not scaring the old folks who often disproportionately vote Republican by making it seem like we're going to mess with their options right now. Talk about this in just a minute. I'm a little bit fed up with sort of the duplicitous way we do things. To me, it may be about time that we had... Uh, a fail-fast approach to some of these issues, like the Affordable Care Act. And here, if you really think that the answer is that the Medicare stop existing, if that's your long-term plan, be honest with the people who are in post-retirement age right now. Be honest on how you're going to handle these things for current retirees. Don't just threaten the fate of future retirees. I would like for the, the retirees of this generation to feel the impact of a policy decision that impacts generations to come. And not only does that not seem unreasonable, I question the, the morality of anybody who thinks otherwise. Do you agree that President Barack Obama's weak foreign policy leadership has confused our nation's allies and emboldened our enemies? Now, I've yet to speak to a single one of our nation's allies who would agree with this question. Should the United States do everything possible, including the use of ground troops, to stop the ISIS terrorist group from taking control of Iraq and continuing their murderous rampage in Syria? Again, how would a little old lady in Rockford, Illinois, say no to a question worded that way with that many assumptions behind it and no ownership of the situation we're in and how we got here? Is stopping the flow of illegal immigrants across our southern border a matter of national security? Do you know right now we measure fewer, a decline in the presence of illegal immigrants in this country? But you would never know that by reading this kind of rhetoric. Are you worried that Obamacare will cause a cancellation of your health insurance, forcing you to purchase new insurance that provides coverage you don't need, raises your deductibles, and limits your choice of doctors? That's the tone of voice I hear when I read these questions. I think I'll segue from the questions just for a second to dive into this other idea of the principle that I believe in. That's If you're going to fail at something, fail fast. And how does that idea contrast with a constant nibbling, nipping at the heels approach to Obamacare? There's been nothing short of 50 legislative efforts to overturn all or parts of the law, and not an insubstantial number of lawsuits as well, where maybe the approach should be cards on the table time. Sometimes it's right to say goodnight. Set a point in time where we're either going to decide that we're going to persuade everyone we need to persuade, judges, um, nonpartisan people, unbiased people in chambers of, of the Congress, or the voters. But the problem is, the American voters were presented with an electoral opportunity in 2012 that was almost entirely staged as a referendum on Obamacare. Anybody who doesn't remember that should go look at the media of the time. It was clear that the goal was, 
if you think Obamacare is a mistake, you're going to vote out Barack Obama. And we didn't do that. So the American people have kind of, yeah, maybe in a somewhat indifferent way, kind of voiced their opinion. We've heard from a divided Supreme Court about it. And the Congress, again, continues to make votes. Some pass, some don't. The ones that have passed got vetoed. If there's a case to be made that is capable of being persuasive, we should have made it a long time ago. Candidly, I will tell you, I believe there is a case for a serious reform of Obamacare that needed to have been made and implemented a long time ago. But we're not having that conversation. Paul Ryan, as recently as this month, January 2016, when pressed to ask for what the better idea was besides the Affordable Care Act, is still now, almost eight years later, talking about how we don't have one yet, but we need to come up with one. Really? You knew, going into the 2008 election, some of the principles that were going on in Obama's mind, and he did not do what he said he was going to do. But we've since gone through the courts one way and down the other. We've been through the legislative chambers. We've had presidential elections, all designed to overturn this. We haven't been able to get it done. Because the other options, the other ideas that would work, would involve making the same hard choices that Obama himself refused to make when the version of Affordable Care Act that we have today was actually passed. There are hard decisions. They might involve a completely different method of guaranteeing health care to people. It might involve the country honestly looking in the mirror and saying, listen, we don't care if people die. If you have enough money that you can buy health insurance, you're covered. And if something bad happens to you, we're going to do everything in our power to heal you. But if you don't have that money, or if you have the money but refuse to get insurance, and you actually then find out that your own personal fortune is not enough without the insurance, if you don't have the insurance and you don't have the money, are we just okay that those people die? That's your fail fast, fail now question. It's the first yes-no question in the flow diagram that will lead us to a better answer or to deciding that we're stuck with this because it might be the best that we can actually do in the current political climate. I would say that I could walk you through the same kind of decision tree on other issues like school, prayer, and abortion because it's absolutely true. If you look at the legislative approach, at the grassroots election approach, all the sort of things that are being done around those kinds of social issues, none of it is direct. None of it is honest. None of it, for example, raises the question of should we be throwing women who have miscarriages in prison? Yes or no? Let's have that conversation and then learn from the principles that come out of it and apply those to the rest of the issue and let all those people who aren't bright enough to think deeply enough, and this isn't even deep thought, this is shallow thought, but the people who aren't bright enough to even think shallowly enough to get to this point in these arguments should not be listened to. They need to go seek more of that training and education that was talked about earlier in the unemployment question. To get back to this survey, just to round out some of the other things that we haven't heard before, here's an old canard. Do you believe medical malpractice reform to stop frivolous lawsuits should be a priority of health care reform legislation? I'm not sure it should be the number one priority. It's cards that we should have on the table. But don't tell me about the cards you want to put on the table if you're not willing to put those cards there when the time is right and the time has long been right. Do you believe you would receive the same quality of health care and accessibility to needed treatments through a federal government-run health care system? Well, I would say that we eat meals in the safety of government-run programs to assure that our food is not contaminated, except that a Republican in North Carolina 
this week, maybe even today as I record, made what may or may not have been a joke about us not needing any federal or state laws requiring people who handle food to wash their hands after they use the restroom. It's shockingly tone deaf if it's a joke. It's worse if it's not a joke. And his principle was sort of Friedman Economics 101. Well, you know, we should we should pass a law, because we hate laws. This hands-washing law is a terrible nuisance. Let's pass a law instead that forces the restaurant to tell you whether or not they have a policy that employees wash hands. And then you won't need that pesky law telling people what to do. Well, to be honest with you, I'm kind of in favor of disclaimer signs laws. If one of these Religious Freedom Protection Act states would like to pass one of those laws, I think that has to go along with an idea proposed in Oklahoma's legislature a couple years ago that businesses should correspondingly be forced to put a sign prominently on the front door of their locations and on their websites saying who they aren't going to do business with because of their closely held religious beliefs. Because at the very least, those of us who love Jesus and love morality more than we hate any of our other citizens can stop shopping at those stores and force those stores to feel the full brunt of the economic impact of their point of view. If there is a full brunt to be felt, a lot of people went to Chick-fil-A a few years ago, and most of them were really confused about why they were doing it. Almost all of them, in my opinion, were either bigoted or confused about what, what was going on, what was leading people to be critical of Chick-fil-A in the first place. Do you support the U.S. Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade to allow the states to regulate and restrict abortions as they see fit? If this question were to play out, I wonder if the GOP is prepared for what might happen inside those states. Right now they perceive that all of these state regulations are in place to ban abortion and it's the federal government who's holding us back. But the same people who are voting for people who are holding a line on the federal freedom of choice and reproductive health care would perhaps stop ignoring local elections, and they might stop ignoring them overnight. And finally, this form ends with, of course, the obligatory uh, support reply form segment. Yes, I want to do everything I can to ensure that the Republican Party is prepared to launch and support an aggressive national campaign to take over the White House in 2016. It actually sounds a little bit Oregon, quote, quote, unquote, militia, like, uh, are they going to take over the White House by winning an election and persuading a majority of the American people? Or are they going to do it by, well, by any means necessary? No, I put a little note to myself, a little check mark next to the box that says, no, I do not wish to participate. Underneath an elaborate list of denominations you can give to donate. But underneath it, after it says, but I am returning this document with a sponsoring contribution of $15 to help cover the cost of tabulating the surveys. I do not for one minute believe that it's going to take $15 per survey to tabulate the cost of this, because I don't believe for one minute that this actually was a survey. It was basically a piece of marketing. And on some level, I apologize for wasting your time on it. 
Greetings from the cockpit. This is Captain Scott, and we'd like to thank you for flying the Seder Sphere. This is co-pilot Cindy. We ask you at this time to unfasten your safety belt and release your chairs from their uptight position. We're high-flying with stopovers expected in theater, gaming, movies, television, and other mature destinations. We'd like to thank you for flying the frisky skies, and we hope to see you on our next flight to the Seder Sphere. I have a quick article that I saved from November, and I saved it just to see if it would actually come true. This is a change.org petition, or an update against a change.org petition, that had this headline in it. NCAA apparently will reconsider host cities based on current events regarding LGBT rights. Looks like the reverberations from the Houston backlash are starting to become more apparent. Well, yes. Uh, Congratulations to the NCAA for saying that after this year, you'll take a better look at situations like this. The NFL already did. Many of us believe that the uh, National Football League a couple of years ago was single-handedly responsible for encouraging uh, Arizona Governor, then-Governor Jan Brewer, to um, veto their Religious Freedom Act that they'd proposed by essentially saying that everybody who's associated in any way with the NFL needs to be... um, The Super Bowl won't be in a city that would be discriminating against any of those people, whether it's based on their um, color of skin, religious affiliation, or their sexual orientation. It used to be that this was controversial just because of sexual orientation, but you can add gender identity to the list. The reason I bring it up here, because it's not new news, this is a November email I saved, is that the NCAA Final Four this upcoming year is still scheduled to be in Houston. There was plenty of time last year, in November, to move it, and nothing was done. If the NCAA is still applying pressure that might lead to some meaningful change in the treatment of transgender people in Houston, for just one example, then I will eat these words. But right now, this strikes me as a lot of PR. strikes me as a lot of talk. So I wanted to save that as the last short subject. But I also had some feedback, and I thought I might, I might share that in terms of just uh, picking and choosing a few that I've gotten in. And one of them came from a friend at work. It's a trained zoo quote from, it looks like it's from one of those uh, page-a-day calendars. This one, the Zen Buddhism page-a-day calendar. When you see a straight piece of wood, you don't want to make it into a wheel nor do you try to make a rafter out of a crooked piece. You don't want to pervert its inborn quality, but rather see that it finds its proper place. When I'm talking about how upset I am with what went down in Houston, and why I'm going to be very unhappy with the NCAA if their approach to this was more talk and PR than anything else, is this quote. When you see a straight piece of wood, you don't try to make it into a wheel, and you don't try to make a rafter out of a crooked piece. You don't want to pervert its inborn quality, but rather see that it finds its proper place. Chuang Tzu. The problem that we have on these issues of gender identity in this country come from people who have told themselves, wrongly in this case, that there is no such thing as a straight piece of wood or a crooked piece of wood, that every piece of wood is straight. When you know, just by looking, by observing, By doing what Jesus did, walking the earth and asking people questions, you can clearly see the difference. And a refusal to acknowledge that difference, especially one that actually does real harm to people in the form of them facing physical violence, threats and intimidation, uh, perhaps even leading to suicide, is morally repugnant. 
So I have feedback that I got from uh, on Facebook. This is uh, one piece of feedback that I did not include in Inappropriate Conversations number 172, Proud to Know You. It came out roughly around the same time. Timmy Sims wrote me there via Facebook to say, Hi Greg, I just listened to your Pride 48 Vegas episode. I've always heard your name and saw you in chat rooms. I've had your podcast on my list for a long time, but I've never gotten past, say, the first 10 minutes of whatever episode I was listening to or attempting to listen to. I have to admit that I accidentally turned on this one and didn't have, didn't have the reach to the switch while I was attempting to listen. And, and so, to me, I, one of the reasons I wanted to share this feedback is that sometimes a points and questions show, this minding your P's and Q's idea, is always going to you know, feel a little bit egotistical because you know, the overwhelming majority of the feedback I get is positive. So I appreciate Tim's candor and saying, hey, sometimes the first time you listen to something it's because you're sort of a captive audience. The first different drummer I ever named was Gordon Gano, lead singer uh, and principal lyricist of the Violent Femmes. And I'd heard a few songs along the way in the early 1980s, but didn't really like them. What led me to like them, when I, I finally sat down and gave them the patient listening that I needed to do, was being, again, like this. In my case, I was too ill. I was too ill to get up and turn on some other music. Laying in my college dormitory bunk bed, just trying to breathe well, with a severe case of bronchitis, perhaps bordering on pneumonia. My roommate, a brilliant guy, sometimes absent-minded, came in and put on a cassette recorded from vinyl LP that had the first Violent Femmes album on side one and the second, Hallowed Ground, my favorite, on side two. Of course, then it wasn't my favorite. I hadn't really listened properly all the way through. The problem was that it was one of those auto-reverse cassette players, if you can remember those back in the day, meaning that the cassette deck played the first album, then automatically flipped and played the second one, and then kept going back and forth and back and forth, and with my roommate gone for several hours, forgetting that he'd left the player on, gave me what I would call almost a, at least a half dozen listens to, well, let's just put it this way. I still know the words to most of those songs. But it was that trick. Um, I probably would not have had the patience, if healthy, to continue listening to the same album over and over again until I frankly, finally, for the first time, got what they were doing. And that's what Tim says. I'm so glad I listened. It was the perfect moment in time and opportunity for me to finally, quote, get you, unquote. I know why Nicole, from Greetings from Nowhere, loves your words and your voice so dearly. It was very brave of you to not only go to a Pride event, but to hold your voice amidst a number of loud atheists, gay or straight. Thank you so much. And thank you, Tim. That may be one of my favorite pieces of feedback I received from the aftermath of Pride 48 this past year in Las Vegas. I also got feedback from a person named Blind Guy J. Uh, I call him that because that's how he's identified on the Inked, Blind, and Confused podcast. And he gave me some response to that episode where I was reading the responses from others. In other words, I got feedback about episode 172, not just feedback for episode number 172. Jay says, It was great listening to you and so glad to hear your thoughts on the weekend. As I said before, it was wonderful to have you and your wife there for the weekend, and I am doubly grateful that everyone made you feel welcome. I'd be disappointed to learn if you had happened if you had not been welcomed, but this only reinforces my love for this community of people. There will always be a little bit of drama, and we all have our unique personalities, but overall the group always seems to come together and be welcoming. And 
I would say that I could echo Jay's words entirely. He's hit the nail on the head. Finally, one last piece of feedback for this feedback show. Uh, One of the Simply Syndicated folks that I've interacted with over the years, and and really kind of uniquely around Christmas in some ways, Uh, I've been both the uh, Secret Santa for Matt, and previously Matt was the Secret Santa for me, within that other community, the, uh, the Simply Syndicated community. It's interesting that these two podcasting networks have nothing really in common with each other directly. From a podcasting perspective, it's probably just me. I'm probably the only person who's been a voice on shows on both networks before. But that's not to say that there aren't other Pride 48 listeners of Simply Syndicated and the other way around. Matt says this, Just wanted to drop a note expressing how much I'm still very much enjoying your shows. They always make me think, no matter the topic... I feel I've grown somewhat in my own spiritual journey listening to yours. Probably directly related to Walk the Earth, uh, but maybe not entirely. There's a bit of a journey going on on both these podcasts. Which, in the spirit of reciprocity, Matt wrote, feel I'm again compelled to share some of my own journey with you. On Sunday, I'll be teaching my first religious education class. I'm really excited about it. My team will be teaching a curriculum called Bibleodian to 6th and 8th graders. As my own exposure to the Bible is limited to Acts, teaching this class will expand my own knowledge. I have not read the whole of the curriculum, but it focuses mostly on the Old Testament. If there was a book of things I never thought I'd do, teaching in a religious education class would be chapter one, page one, but it shows you you never know where your journey will take you. As always, keep up the good work. I look forward to your next show. Regards, Matt. And I always, frankly, look forward to Matt's next email. He is going into a place that probably would be safe to say even as few as three, four years ago, was well outside his comfort zone. And that, at least for a uh, an episode that's shorter on feedback and longer on short subjects, is your points and questions number five. I always do this to myself. I tell myself that what I want to say might might be short. It doesn't feel like it's long on content. And inappropriate conversations podcasts always, within a certain range of plus or minus, seem to fall into the same kind of length. It might tighten up what I have to say, though, about the different drummer. Our different drummer today is actor Marcello Mastriani. And before I share just a little bit of what Wikipedia and the all-media guide have to say about him, I'll say he's probably the single most important international actor of my lifetime. Uh, born uh, September 1924 and died in December of 1996 at age 72. And he has been a part of some of the most important films in the history of cinema, almost none of them in English. Here's what Wikipedia has to say. Marcello Vincenzo Domenico Mastrioni, Knight Grand Cross, was an Italian film actor. His prominent films include La Dolce Vita, Eight and a Half, La Notte, Divorce Italian Style, Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow, Marriage Italian Style, and more. There's a quick intro there. And mentioning some of the films that I, I would definitely cite. Uh, La Notte by Michelangelo Antonioni. Federico Fellini's Eight and a Half. Perhaps less famous to the casual filmgoer than La Dolce Vita, but certainly my first introduction into uh, Mastroianni's work. And maybe, maybe if I've pushed, I might call that his best work. This weekend, kind of in a post-Christmas sale, I picked up something that I hadn't seen before called A Special Day. This is an Ettore Scola uh, release from the late 1970s. 
The back cover says, Italian cinema dream team Sophia Loren and Marcello Mastroianni are cast against glamorous type and deliver two of the finest performances of their career in this moving, quietly subversive drama. Though it's set in Rome on the historic day in 1938 when Benito Mussolini and, and the city first rolled out the red carpet for Adolf Hitler, the film takes place entirely in a working-class apartment building where an unexpected friendship blossoms between a pair of people who haven't joined the festivities, a conservative housewife and mother tending to her domestic duties, and a liberal radio broadcaster awaiting deportation. A Special Day is a film featuring Mastriani that I haven't seen before. I will be seeing it soon, because I picked it up from the Criterion Collection in a post-holiday sale. A lot of people probably think of Mastroianni together with Sophia Loren, and that does make sense, especially in the uh, the marital comedy realm. Uh, they were probably the best-known pairing from an international cinema perspective in the United States. I would still say, though, that probably La Dolce Vita at eight and a half from Fellini, or the uh, La Note, the central piece in Michelangelo Antonioni's famous trilogy, might be better known, or certainly better appreciated. Here's what the All Movie Guide says at www.allmovie.com about Mastriani uh, in an article penned by Jason Ancani. The premier Italian actor of the post-war era, Marcello Mastriani was among the most popular international stars in movie history. A speculative, almost introverted scene presence, he was the perfect foil for the arid, often puzzling films of directors like Antonioni and Fellini, with whom he achieved some of his greatest success. Couldn't agree more. But I wanted to cite him as a different drummer for a couple of other reasons. There's really only been a couple of times that I'm aware of, and there's probably been more, because surfing online is surfing online. But there's a couple of times when I knew I was willingly rolling the dice and taking a chance on doing damage to my home PC by downloading a piece of movie player software or or buying a film and and having it download directly to my uh, PC from a, yeah, an unknown source when it comes to uh, picking up a film in that sort of digital format. And I was disappointed on both fronts uh, each time I did it. But my almost desperation to see these movies was what led me there, and I still feel that same sense today. Uh, Lucino Visconti did an interpretation in the late 1960s of the Albert Camus book, The Stranger, and he cast in the leading role Mastriani. Now, if you go back to what All, All Movie Guides said, that notion of him having sort of an almost introverted, speculative screen presence, in some ways, at least if you're going to cast an Italian actor, um, Mastriani might be the perfect actor to play that part. I haven't seen it. I successfully downloaded not just that, but a a software to play that film and was trying to watch it. And it's in, in, in Italian with English subtitles, and I could read the subtitles just fine. I could have seen the movie all the way through, but the problem was that I kept getting pop-up video ads with with loud audio on them that I was unable to mute or stop from popping up. Uh, a piece of uh, adware at the very least, or malware, that it took a great deal of time to get cleaned up off the computer. In other words, rather than succeeding in watching The Stranger starring Mastriani, I succeeded in screwing up my computer for a while. And it is, you know, not that I ever had warm feelings toward pop-up video ads. It certainly erased any tolerance I might have had, because there was no way I was going to be able to watch 
a movie, even what my wife calls a reading movie, where you don't really have to hear the actors speak to understand the words because the subtitles are there on the screen, in this case in sort of a weird yellow color. No, the problem was, if you're a film fan, if you're a film lover, that distraction of having some sort of Walmart ad pop up every five minutes absolutely ruins the movie-going experience. Plus, the reason that I prefer a subtitled film to a dubbed film, especially when you're dealing with an actor of Mastriani's caliber, is that voice is a huge piece of performance. And if you take away the voice of somebody like Mastriani and replace it, I'll use Gilbert Gottfried as a comic example, but you get what I mean. Replace it with somebody else's voice. It certainly is going to detract from the performance. The other one is an Italian film called Todo Modo. And you'll see it listed in places like Wikipedia on his filmography without a link. This isn't the kind of movie that's going to jump you to an Amazon page to buy the DVD or even the IMDb section. It's going to have scant information because it was never really shown in America for an American audience. But this is another one where, in this case, I wasn't necessarily taking a risk by getting a uh, a good subtitled version. The problem was the version of Totomoto that I was able to find to watch streaming didn't have subtitles at all. In other words, to enjoy both the visual and the auditory part of Mastroianni's performance, and frankly the performance of another former different drummer, um, Michelle Piccioli, I was going to have to do it in Italian with no subtitles to help me understand the Italian. And the problem with Totomoto, if I'm going to go look it up just so I can read a description, is that this is not one of those films that's an action movie. If you're not understanding the words, you're not understanding the movie. Here's what the All Movie Guide says about the 1976 film Totomoto. Set in an indeterminate time in a near future, this routine, well-acted drama by Elio Petri tackles favorite Italian topics, religion and politics. A bit of macabre fantasy is added to the mix, but in the end, the product remains somewhat muddled. Don Gitano, played by Mastriani, is a priest who is supervising a group of Christian Democrats on a religious retreat. The objective is to help these politicians purify their past wrongdoings, no matter how large or small, and live closer to God. The retreat takes place in a concrete bunker with plenty of small rooms for contemplation, and icons set here and there to offer inspiration. Once the retreat begins, the politicos alarmingly begin to die off one by one. Don Gatano wants to get them closer to God, but did he mean that close? Obviously, inappropriate conversations material, featuring prominently our different drummer, Marcello Mastriani. Earlier in the show, I offered a lot of the contact information for inappropriate conversations. And as always, if you'd like to offer some dialogue to this conversation yourself, you're more than welcome. I can't guarantee that within a year, I'll cover it in a Year Points and Questions show. May not cover it at all, but I do read and I do respond. Thanks for listening. Thank you.
Kevin McLeod.